Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. WCC, it's good seeing everybody. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10. Um, we are continuing a sermon series on Christianity and culture, and today I'm actually going to be talking about marriage and sexuality. So let me give you the, the schedule just for the next couple of weeks. I think what I'm going to do next week is talk about uh, sexuality and identity. I think we're going to talk about that next week. And then the, the following week, whatever that is, the 20th, I'm going to be talking about homosexuality and transge- transgenderism. Okay, so that's the schedule for the next couple of weeks. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at a, just a few verses from the beginning of Mark chapter 10 where Jesus, as I said, is talking about uh, marriage and sexuality. And so we're, what we're going to see is, I hope we see this, is just how wonderful it is when people live in accordance with God's design for marriage and sexuality. So that's, in fact, that's the title of the sermon. Is I'm, uh, I, Josh, I think I gave you the wrong one. I'm going to call it God's Design for Marriage and Sexuality. So what we're going to be doing is looking at the, the beauty of sexual purity and marriage permanence. And I actually preached this sermon about three and a half years ago, and I've intended to preach it actually more recent than this, um, because this is the, the area, I think, the area where the culture is hitting hardest at the church is in the area of sexuality. And so that's why I want to I talk about this, because if the church doesn't talk about it, then all we're going to hear and all our kids are going to hear is from the culture. And the culture's not going to be quiet about this, okay? So the culture's going to keep on talking. So if we're silent about it, then all our kids are going to hear is, is what the culture is telling them, okay? So what we're going to be doing is looking, as I said, the beauty of sexual purity and marriage permanence. In particular, we're going to be looking at the results of things like sexual promiscuity before marriage, and we're going to look at the effects that divorce has on both adults and children. I want to say this too, Uh, I'm going to be talking about divorce, but I want to stress that not every person who's been through a divorce is to blame. There are oftentimes divorces are almost entirely one spouse is to blame, I recognize that. Also, even when the divorce is the result of both spouses' sins, It's important to remember that divorce is not the unforgivable sin, right? Forgiveness and healing are always available through Jesus Christ. So I'm not here to bash divorced people at all. In fact, many of the people that I love the most in my life have been divorced. So don't think I'm here to to cast stones or to bash people. And also, just being real, all of us are sinners, right? All of us are sinners, and at a certain age, all of us are sexual sinners. So I'm not here to pick on anybody. Okay, so the big idea for the sermon today is this, and I'm going to try to express this a number of times, is as I said, that those who live in accordance with God's design for marriage and sexuality, they flourish. This is how flourishing takes place. Those who live according to God's design, they thrive and they flourish. Those who live in obedience to God's word word about marriage and sexuality, they're blessed by the Lord. They just have flourishing. All right, let's look at Mark 10. And we're going to be looking at this issue of marriage and sexuality. So what is marriage? And Jesus was asked this question by the Pharisees. The Pharisees are always coming up to, to as we saw in the, in the corporate reading, Pharisees and Sadducees were often coming up to Jesus, challenging him. And the Pharisees in this passage in Mark 10, they ask a question about divorce, but Jesus focuses actually on marriage. So let's look at Mark 10 and let's read verses 2 through 9, okay? 
Mark 10, 2 through 9. It says, And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, to test Jesus, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So they want to know if it's permitted to divorce, to divorce his wife. He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, so they want to talk about divorce, but listen to what Jesus says. He says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, he goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in creation. He says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And then Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay? There's a lot to discuss here, but really I want to only look at just a couple of aspects of Jesus' answer. One is this. This is number one. That God joins the husband and wife together. You see that? Look back at verse 9. He says, what God has joined together. Let not man separate. What well, God is joined together. God is the one who does the joining in marriage. God is the one who joins the husband and wife. Okay, So God is active in, in a marriage. And also I want to stress this. This is not just in Christian marriages. This is a creation ordinance. This is, this is all marriages. All true marriages involving a man and a woman. And a marriage union joined by God, as Jesus said, is not to be separated by any other authority. Only God has the authority to separate them. And how does God separate marriages? There's only one way that he does that. It's through death. That's why when we take a vow, till death do us part. So, so God is the Lord of life and he's the Lord of death. So what that means is marriage is for life. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7.39. He says, a wife is bound to her husband. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. So this is marriage permanence, as long as the husband and wife are living. Paul goes on to say, if her husband dies, he says, yes, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Marry a Christian, that's what he's saying. But, but, but a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. So in God's design, the only thing that should separate a husband and wife is death. This is God's will. This is God's plan. The death of the husband or the death of the wife. And as, as I said, that's why I brought my wife up last week as a, as a prop, and we were talking about our wedding vows, and that's why we said in our vows, till death to us part, okay? So what we're saying when we take those vows is we're not going to part until one of us dies. So marriage is for life. Now, I'm not going to get into all the questions about divorce, but I'll just say generally divorce is not God's will. Remember Jesus said divorce was allowed. He said, because of your hardness of heart. Now, the church has recognized that there are cases where divorce is permitted. I'm not going to get into all that now. But right now, what I simply want you to see is that when Jesus was asked if it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife, Jesus' response was, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Okay? So again, God is the one who joins the husband and wife together. That's one part of Jesus' answer. Another one is this. This is number two. Jesus says that marriage occurs, he says, when one man leaves his parents and holds fast to one woman, his wife. Holds fast. Verses 7 and 8. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The King James, I think, says cleaves to. Okay, so, so for the hold fast part. 
So this is part two of Jesus' response. He says the, the husband holds fast or cleaves to his wife. So what this means is that husband and wife, one man and one woman, they come together and they form a complementary, comprehensive union in marriage. And this is important too, that the cleaving together, the holding fast together, this includes a sexual union. The joining together of a husband and wife includes a sexual union. Includes, we could say it includes a procreative union. In other words, procreative, a union where children can be procreated. So marriage includes this union of two complementary people, male and female, coming together sexually. So creating this union, this one flesh union. So if you think about a wedding, the, there's a, a big part of a wedding is the fact that it involves vows before witnesses, right? It's a public ceremony. It's not a private thing. So these public wedding vows involve, for this man and woman, a coming together of hearts and minds and wills and families, right? They come together in a covenant union. And the conjugal act, the sexual union, is the coming together bodily of the man and the woman. So the, the, the conjugal act, the sexual activity, is the seal of this covenantal marriage union. So what is marriage? It's a union of a man and a woman joined by God for life. It's, a per, it's meant to be a permanent love relationship of one man and one woman. So it's a one flesh union between the husband and wife. So the second point and what Jesus makes it clear and what the Bible makes clear is this. That sex is a wonderful blessing that God has given to people, but it's to be confined to marriage. It's to be confined to marriage between a man and wife for life. Okay? And, and, and what I want to say, too, is this goes back to creation ordinance. This isn't just the church's opinion. This is the, I'm not going to get into a whole bunch of stuff now, but this is the way that God has designed it. So this is, a, this is a fact about what marriage is. This is not just our opinion about what marriage is. This is like this actual, what is the word, ontology, like, like a thing that is. Okay? It's the way God has designed us. So God has created the world in such a way that the sexual union is only to take place between a husband and a wife. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. And that includes premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, pornography, fornication, adultery, whatever. Anything outside of the sexual union between a husband and wife is sexual immorality. And again, this is the way that God has designed us. I want to expose a lie here because our kids especially hear this lie all the time. We hear it all the time, but especially I'm thinking about our young people. Here's the lie, is that sex is no big deal. Sex is no big deal. Who cares? And people will say, if you take sex too seriously, then you'll be repressed. You know, you'll have these problems. And they'll say, in fact, even casual sex is good for you. Helps you relax, improves your self-esteem, all that. That is such a lie. It is such a lie. Saying that casual sex is good for you, it is a lie that is so wicked and pernicious, and it has ruined countless lives. Go back to what Jesus says in in Mark 10. Look at at 7 and 8, Mark 10 verses 7 and 8. Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24, very beginning of the Bible, when God created Adam and Eve. And he says this, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So this, the word that Jesus uses to describe this union, this one flesh union, is cleaves to, as I said, or holds fast to. So the husband leaves his, his parents and cleaves to his wife. 
And literally what this word is, is like glued to. There's a sense it's like cemented to. So that's the sense of what is being, what God is joining together with man and wife in marriage. It's like cemented or welded together. So what Jesus is saying, what God is saying is that when a man and woman come together sexually, when they become one flesh, something significant is happening here. This is not a casual thing. This is not a trivial thing. Something significant is happening. And it's not just a physical act. What Jesus is saying is it's much more important than that. that. The man and the woman are joined together in such a way that they're not just joined physically, they're not just joined sexually, they're joined emotionally. They're joined spiritually. And again, this happens whether you like it or not. This happens whether you believe it or not, whether you intend for it to happen or not. It doesn't matter. This is just the way it is. This is the way that God has created. So God has made people in such a way that they flourish, they thrive when the sexual union takes place only within marriage. Okay, this is the way God has made us. I'm going to use an illustration. I'm going to use a tape illustration. Anybody remember me doing this before? Just a couple of you? All right, good, good. All right. So this is my illustration. And I, kids, this is how much I love you. I'm going to go through pain during a sermon, okay? This is some gorilla tape, okay? And I'm putting this gorilla tape on my hairy arm right here, all right? I'm glad we don't do two services. So I've got this gorilla tape, and I'm sticking it on here real tight, okay? And what I'm saying is the way that God has joined a man and a woman sexually is this bond. It is like glued to. Okay, so what happens, and we'll look, we're actually going to look at some things about what happens. What happens if a man has many sexual partners? What happens if a woman has many sexual partners? What it would be like is me ripping off this tape and then ripping, putting it back on and ripping it off and putting it back on. Okay, that's the illustration. So I'm going to rip it off right now. There's going to be a, at least two results, okay? One... <laughs> One is it's going to hurt, all right? And that really hurt. Okay. So I ripped off that tape, and there's hair on here because I ripped it off my arm, okay? So there's one result is this, that there's pain. That's what happens when people have many sexual partners. They have pain. They have spiritual, they have emotional pain. When people are sexually active, they experience this pain. J.I. Packer says this. He says, sexual laxity does not make you more human, but less human. Sexual laxity brutalizes you and tears your soul to pieces. And that's what happens. When people are sexually active, engaging in sex outside of marriage, their souls are torn to pieces. For for example, I'm going to give you some examples. These are studies, and I'm just showing these studies to show you that it confirms God's design for marriage. Sexually active teenagers are three to six times more likely to experience severe depression than kids who are not sexually active. Sexually active teenagers are three to six times more likely to attempt suicide than teenagers who are not sexually active. And it goes on like that, okay? When you live outside of God's design for sexuality, there's going to be pain. There's going to be emotional and spiritual pain. But there's another result, okay? A person who has many sexual partners also has difficulty staying married. This is the bond that I'm talking about. They have great difficulty holding together. When, think about it, when is the holding power of the tape the strongest? 
First time, second, fifth, 20th time, it's the first time that I put it on. So when I put the tape back on now, I try to get it to stay on, but it doesn't stick as much. And so when a person has multiple sexual partners, that's what this is like. The holding power. God has designed this to have holding power in sexuality within marriage. And when a person has many sexual partners, the holding power just does not stay. And you see this. I I can show you. I I thought about putting a graph up, but it, it it was an illustration of how many sexual partners a woman had prior to marriage and a man had prior to marriage. And the, the, the odds of them being married, like five years later, the, the graph goes down like this. So the more sexual partners they have, the more likely they're not going to last in a marriage. Okay? This is the way that God has designed us. When a man and woman come together in marriage, it's meant to be for life. And the holding power, the bonding power is strongest when a man and woman come together sexually in marriage and they never have sexual relations with another person. So the original bonding is never ripped apart. Again, remember the tape. The tape just doesn't hold if we, if we keep ripping it off, okay? So again, sexuality is like the cement that God uses to bond a man and woman together in marriage. And this union, again, is to last a lifetime. So the world says that casual sex is no big deal. That's a lie, slide number one, because casual sex is a huge deal. It leads to, to pain, it leads to inability to bond. A second lie is this, and it goes along with the first one. The second lie is this, that sex is necessary to sustain a new or struggling relationship. People will tell you that. That's false. Sex is not necessary to sustain a new or struggling relationship. In fact, the fact is, the quicker that sex enters into a relationship, the sooner the relationship fails. And most relationships fail. One of the things I love, if you've ever read the book or seen the movie or miniseries, Pride and Prejudice, I love that. What I love about Pride and Prejudice is you see the lengthy time that these couples have just being together and becoming friends. They get to know one another. They get to know each other's families. And sex does not enter the relationship until marriage, okay? And the fact is, this waiting, this, this waiting on, on being sexually active just leads to more stable and happier marriages. So young people, I would ask you to think about this. The more sexual partners a person has, the greater likelihood of depression, the greater likelihood of divorce. The more sexual partners a person has, the greater likelihood of having an, having an unhappy marriage, And also, the earlier a person engages in sexual activity, the greater the likelihood of depression, greater likelihood of divorce, okay? In contrast, young people, here's the exciting news that couples who who wait until marriage generally have happier marriages, and they have a very low rate of divorce. Now, I want to say this. I'm going to stress this a couple of times in the sermon. The ultimate goal of all this, the ultimate goal of life is not having happy marriages or staying married. Or whatever, right? The ultimate goal of our lives is to glorify God, is to draw near to Christ and live for Him. But because really, marriage and sexuality, although I'm talking about it, these are less important issues. And that's why marriage isn't the ultimate goal. In fact, our Lord Jesus was single and celibate. Many towering figures in church history remained single and celibate, okay? So the ultimate goal is not to get married and have kids. The ultimate goal for our lives is to glorify God to live for Jesus Christ and draw near to him because of what he's done for us. 
But I'm pointing the stuff out about marriage and sexuality to show, again, that it is a witness to God's good design. It's a witness to the beauty and blessing of living a life in accordance with God's design, living in, in obedience to him. So again, line number one, casual sex is no big deal. Line number two is sex is necessary to sustain a struggling relationship. Line number three is this one, and this is a huge one nowadays. People will think this, and I see this in the church a lot. They think that living together is a healthy step toward marriage. That living together is a good thing. Huge percentages of couples nowadays live together, even within the church. And a lot of Christians think that there's no difference between being married and living together. So the lie is that living together is this, this healthy step toward marriage. It's false. It's absolutely false. The truth is that cohabitation, living together, usually does not last. Living together usually leads to breakups. And if the couple living, is living together and they end up getting married, they're more likely to divorce than couples who do not live together. There's a huge difference between living together and being married. People think that there's no difference, but it's a huge difference. I'm not going to go into a, a big discussion about it now, but just a few things to point out. One, marriage is a protection against injustice for adults, and particularly I'm thinking of women, but also especially for children when kids are involved. In fact, a lot of countries now are trying to figure out how to deal with the ramifications of people because they live together, they have kids, and then they break up, and they see that kids are impacted in this way. So, so countries are trying to figure out how to deal with this because marriage is just on the decline so much. But often kids who are, are in families where the mom and dad are just living together and not married, oftentimes those kids suffer terribly. A second one is this. Marriage removes ambiguity. If you're living together, I've dealt with this with friends and family. I'm like, who is this person? What do I call them? They're not a spouse, right? People have no idea about the nature of the relationship. Three, there's something very important about the accountability of a public promise. When my extended family, when my friends and coworkers and neighbors, when they know that I've taken marriage vows, I'm much more inclined to keep those vows. Living together is not God's design. It's just not good for anybody. So again, the bottom line, what I'm saying is the goodness of marriage, the goodness of sexual fidelity is very underrated in our culture. And living outside of God's design for marriage just has terrible effects. In contrast, living in accordance with God's plan leads to happier and more stable marriages. All right, back to Mark 10. Again, Jesus was asked about divorce, and he says that divorce is not God's plan. So here's what I want us to think about. So Jesus says divorce is not God's plan. I want us to think about this. Ask the question, what happens when people get divorced? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at two different studies that show the result of, results of divorce. I enjoy looking at studies like this. Maybe it's just me, but I enjoy looking at studies like this because what I find is that they show, they, they verify, they're further evidence of God's beautiful design. And this is the two studies, interestingly, are from the University of California at Berkeley and the University of Chicago. Now, these aren't Bible-believing schools, okay? But what they show is the beauty of God's design. All right, the first study is this one. So I'm thinking about divorce, Okay. And what divorce does, especially to kids. In 1971, Judith Wallerstein and her colleagues from Cal Berkeley followed a group of 60 families who were going through a divorce. This is 1971. If you know anything about history, 
In the 60s and 70s, that's when no-fault divorce arrived in the U.S. And the divorce rate went, it was something like in the 40s and 50s, divorce rate was like 8 to 10 percent. And by the time the 60s and 70s came along, it rose to about 40 percent. Okay, so this is a, I mean, this was an incredible spike in divorces. So they began this study in 71 when no-fault divorce was becoming popular. And what they did was they interviewed these families at various times after the divorce. And the researchers said this. They said the study was supposed to last one year because we believed normal, healthy people would be able to work out their problems following divorce in about a year. They said this was the commonly held assumption. They said we did not question the commonly held belief that divorce was a short-lived crisis. So they thought families would get divorced, and a year later, everybody would be healthy. It would be fine. They said, when we conducted follow-up interviews about a year later, we found, one year later, we found most families were still in crisis mode. Just, just one year later, they were still in crisis mode. They said the wounds were wide open, turmoil and distress had not subsided. So there were still, the, just a year had gone by. Not only was not everybody back to normal, it was still just crisis. So they asked, what were the effects of divorce on kids? And they said this, children of divorced parents feel very alone and very frightened. Children of all ages feel intensely rejected when their parents divorce. When one parent leaves the other, the children interpret the act as including them. So the kids think this, dad left mom, that means dad doesn't love me. Even if the parents keep saying, no, it's not you, they still feel it as rejection. At the 18-month mark, year and a half later, the researchers found that an unexpectedly large number of children were on a downward spiral. Their symptoms were even worse. Their behavior at school was worse. At the end of five years, now remember, they thought one year everybody would be back to normal. At the end of five years, the researchers interviewed the families again. Five years later, they said almost half of the kids were clinically depressed and were not doing well in school or with friends. They had deteriorated to the point that some early disturbances had become chronic. I may get emotional. I'm going to try not to, but I'm a child of divorce, and I know many of you are. Many of you have gone through divorce, eh? so, so I'm, I'm going to try not to be, because that brings, it brings back memories. Free, I'm sorry. Put it this way, I'm 53 years old, and it still has an effect on me. All right. So they said even after five years, the kids were intensely angry at their parents for giving priority to adult needs rather than to kids' needs. Few kids really understood why their parents divorced, even when the parents thought it was obvious. They said children feel intense loneliness when their parents get divorced. They receive almost no support or sympathy from others, even from grandparents. They feel alone in the world. They said this. This was sad to me. They said fewer than 10% of the kids had any adult speak to them sympathetically as the divorce unfolded. So get this, even after five and sometimes 10, I mean, after 10 and sometimes 15 years, these kids had a deep sense of loss. They felt that their family had died. Even 15 years later, many of them experienced deep and strong emotions. Many of the kids had a crippling fear also of entering adulthood and making adult commitments. And that was the way I felt. I thought my parents got divorced So that means I'll probably get divorced. That was just kind of my mindset before I became a Christian. Many of the kids they found had no ambition or no sense of direction. They achieved less in school than what you would have predicted. Uh, Often they dropped out or didn't graduate. Now I want to clarify something, okay? Many of the kids emerged in adulthood as compassionate and competent people. 
But they said this, that almost half of the children entered adulthood as worried, underachieving, and sometimes angry young men and women. So as I said, researchers were expecting that everything would be back to normal within a year. But what they found was this, that even 25 years later, the children were still being influenced by the divorce. Okay? I want to stress something here. As I said, I'm a child of divorce. But by God's grace, his grace is amazing. I have a healthy and happy marriage. I have a healthy and happy family. uh, Because the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is working in me and has worked in you, right? So I've turned out okay, I think. I'm not a complete failure. So the fact that someone's parents divorce doesn't mean your life is ruined, okay? It's, it's a horrible experience, but, but it doesn't mean your life is ruined. But it does affect you your whole life. So I would just say the reason I'm talking about this is if you or someone you care about is thinking about divorce, I'd ask you just to think about these things, okay? Just think about that. All right, that's the effect of divorce on kids. What about the effect that divorce has on adults? This is another study. As I said, this is University of Chicago, and they published this study saying, does divorce make people happy? And here's what they did. Researchers asked people to classify their marriages on a scale ranging from very unhappy to very happy. So they had this big scale, okay? What they did was they identified the couples who said that their marriages were very unhappy or unhappy. And then what they, what they found was they followed those people. So if they classified in this moment, they classified them as their marriage. Is it very unhappy on the scale all the way to very happy? And they find, they, so they, then they take the ones who are very unhappy or unhappy and they start following them and they track what they do. So they're only looking at the unhappy or the very unhappy marriages, okay? Here's what they found. The bottom line is this. So some of those couples separated, some of them got divorced, and some of them stayed married. What they found was this. The divorce is very overrated. Very overrated. On average, these unhappily married adults, the ones who divorced or separated, they were no happier than unhappy married adults who stayed married. Okay? Even unhappy spouses who divorced and remarried were no happier on average than the unhappy spouses who stayed married. On, on average, divorce did not reduce the symptoms of depression for unhappily married adults compared to unhappy spouses who stayed married. So, again, the bottom line was this. Divorce did not result in an increase in happiness. And the reason what well, there's a lot of issues with this, but divorce, by ending an unhappy marriage, it eliminates some stress, but it creates others, like the, the issue with the kids. It, it creates family conflicts. There's custody issues, child support, financial stress, health stress, all these things. So, so on average, divorce did not make people happier, even, even if they got remarried. Now, here's the amazing thing. Okay, Now, think about this. The vast majority of those divorces, of these unhappy uh, marriages, the vast majority of them, 75%, three out of four, if you'd have looked at them five years earlier, they were happy in their marriage. So right now, they're unhappy in their marriage. Five years prior, three-quarters of them were happy in their marriage. And then what they did is they tracked the ones who stayed married. And if they stayed married, they tracked them five years later and Almost three-quarters of them now were happily married. You see what it's saying? So in this moment in time, they're unhappy in their marriage. 
Three out of four were happy five years prior, and the ones who stayed married, three out of four were happy if they stayed married. So, the, and the strangest thing was this, the, the, the unhappiest couple, the unhappiest couples, if they stayed married, 80% of them were happy five years later, okay? So in other words, usually the unhappiness was temporary. It was happy, now it's unhappy, and most of the time they would be, have happy marriages again five years later. It was a temporary thing. Usually things got better. Usually the, the marriages improved over this time. And so they asked these marriages what, what turned it around. And one of the reasons that the most common was is they said they simply refused to give up on their marriages. They just refused. They, they got happier not because they resolved some problem or had a breakthrough, but because they just outlasted their problems in many cases. Many times the sources of conflict and stress ease. So again, Jesus is saying, that this is God wants his people who are married to stay married. He does, it's not his will for us to get divorced. And you see this confirmed by these things like these studies. Also, these people who stayed married, they said they had friends and family members who stressed the importance of staying married. These couples were very thankful for family and friends who were rooting for their marriages. And I think that's huge. That's why church is important, right? For us to root for each other in our families and in our marriage. So I would just ask you to think about how you can help friends or family members who are having difficulty in their marriages. Just being there and encouraging them to stay married. That is a huge part. It really makes a difference in people's lives. And this is important, too, when people have a strong preference for marriage, when a church has a strong preference for marriage, for staying married, marital permanence, more marriages take place, more marriages last, and more marriages are happier. And again, all this all I'm saying is this just shows God's good design for lifetime marriage. It's just beautiful. So we need to remind ourselves all the time that God's ways are the best. His commands are wonderful. And that's in all areas of life. That's not just sexuality and marriage. Jesus said this in, 11, in Luke eleven twenty eight. Luke eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, "Happy are those who hear and obey. Happy are those who hear and obey. Happy are those who hear and obey Jesus's teaching that marriage is for life. Happy are those who hear and obey Jesus's teaching that God's design is for sex to be confined within marriage." I'm gonna wrap up with just a few thoughts. First, as I mentioned earlier. Marriage is not the goal or the finish line. And I want to stress this. And also, sexual purity does not end when you get married, right? And getting married doesn't make you sexually pure. All of us have need for sexual purity, whether we're married or single. In fact, I was reading a thing in Access Ministries. They were talking about some young Christians have thought that if they remained virgins until they got married, then mission accomplished. It's all over. They thought if they played by the rules before getting married, then their marriages were going to be easy. Well, guess what? They're in for a rude awakening, right? Because marriage is always difficult. Marriage is always difficult. Why? Because it involves two sinful people. <laughs> by definition, two sinful, self-centered people. So, so we shouldn't pretend that marriage is the be-all, end-all, or that solves all sorts of problems. Or it's going to be easy. It isn't. Marriage is difficult. Also, God's ultimate purpose for marriage is not for us to be happy. God's ultimate purpose for marriage is to provide a picture of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. That's the ultimate picture of marriage. And so for those of us who are married, that's our calling, to provide a picture of Jesus' relationship with his bride, his wife, the church. 
Okay, that's what human marriage is meant to do, to show about Christ's relationship with his wife, the church. And for us, God's purpose for marriage is also less about our own happiness. Instead, God intends to use our marriages to grow us, to grow us spiritually, to grow us in holiness. So again, marriage is not the ultimate goal. Jesus is the goal. And single people are not, I want to stress this, single people are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Sometimes conservative Christians can make marriage into an idol. Sometimes we can make marriage with kids into this idol. But marriage isn't the ultimate goal. Having kids isn't the ultimate goal. Jesus is the goal. And actually, as we saw in our corporate reading, that, that Jesus says in the resurrection life to come, there won't be anyone getting married or be given in marriage, right? Marriage is not going to be in the resurrection life to come. That doesn't mean our relationships with our spouses are going to be less intimate. They're going to be more intimate. They're going to be better in some way. So, so marriage isn't a, an eternal thing. Um, and as I said before, too, Jesus himself was single and celibate. So, again, marriage is not the goal. The ultimate goal is living for Christ living for him, drawing near to him, to bring him glory. That's, that's what our goal is. And I've talked, and, and I may talk more about this in a future sermon, but also when the, when the New Testament focuses on relationships, the focus is rarely on marriage. You can read the Bible, and there's just not a lot of instructions about marriage. You, you, when I was a young Christian, I was disappointed. I thought the Bible would just be filled with all this teaching on marriage. There's very little, very few passages that talk about it. The Bible's focus, when it's talking about love, it's talking about us as the people of God loving one another. It's the focus is on the one another's. It's about this agape love, this sacrificial love that brothers and sisters in Christ have within the family of God. That's the focus. So, so marital love just is not stressed that much in the scriptures. The focus of the Bible on love is on love that we as brothers and sisters have in the family of God. And all of us, whether we're single or married, get to experience that kind of agape love. Finally, I want to say this. We've talked about divorce and sexual sin. This is important. If someone has sinned against you in any of the ways we've talked about, your family, marriage, parents, spouse, whatever, if someone has sinned against you, remember this, we're called by God to forgive. There may be people who are in marriages right now and you're not forgiving each other. There may be people who are not forgiving another family member. Listen, God is commanding you to forgive. I'm not saying it's easy, but this is what God commands us to do. Every week we pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. And Jesus gives this scary warning. He says, if we don't forgive, then God will not forgive us. That's what Jesus says. So this is serious. We must forgive. There's a lot of hurt that goes on with families and marriage and all this, right? There's a lot of hurt that happens, but we have to forgive. It's not an option. Also, and I'm going to wrap up because I'm done. There's always hope. There's always hope. I don't care what you've done or what you've been through with Jesus Christ. There is always hope. There's always hope for broken families, for broken people. If you have Jesus, you have no right to be hopeless. Even for people who have engaged in a lifetime of sexual immorality, there is always hope. Jesus Jesus loves restoring broken lives. Listen, many of us carry around the burden of shame, burden of sexual sin, or some other sin. And we feel this burden like a weight on our chests. 
And sometimes the burden and the shame that we feel is so heavy that sometimes we feel like we can't breathe. Listen, you don't need to carry that burden around anymore. Give it to Christ. Even if you're Christian, we have to give it to Jesus every day, don't we? We have to hand our burdens over to him at the foot of the cross every day. Because on the cross, Jesus took our burden on himself. So now we can live for him. We can breathe again, right? We can be free from that burden, and we can live lives of joy and freedom and peace as we live for him. And I've said this many times. Yes, I'm a great sinner. Yes, you are a very great sinner. But Jesus is a greater Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we praise you and love you. Lord, thank you for uh, just your words about marriage, about sexuality. Thank you that you didn't leave us in the dark. You didn't have to talk to us about these things. And as I said, it's not like the scriptures are filled with things talking about marriage or relationships, but you do give us instruction. And we need to be people who believe and follow and obey. So I pray that we would be people who do that. Help us, Lord, in that. And for any of us in here who are, are struggling, whether it be in marriage or singleness or in, in sexual sin or whatever, whatever it is we are, I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, that you would give healing even now. And we would see your love for us and your concern for us and your desire to live in accordance with your will. Thank you for your love, Lord. Thank you for just loving us and caring about us. I thank you for the folks here. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are married. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are are single. Lord, bless them. Thank you for just what you're doing in our church. Thank you for how you are saving people and healing people. We pray you continue to do so, Holy Spirit, and allow us to bring glory to you. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross for us. As we're about to come to the table, we think again about your broken body and shed blood, and so we don't have to carry this burden to shame, no matter what it is, whether it's sexual sin or whatever. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for us. We praise you and love you. We pray this in your name, Jesus.